Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Our diplomats got out yesterday. I believe it was a German airlift that we uh, caught a ride with. Um, so it, it, it's going on, but there's obviously a lot of concern about that part of the region to find out what uh, part of the world uh, to find out exactly what's going on and what the situation might be headed towards. We're going to speak with Chris Roberts, who teaches African politics and international relations at the University of Calgary. He's a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and president of African Access Consulting. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being here today. Hey, Shay, how are you doing today? Excellent, excellent, yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll get to the Canadian government and their efforts to get Canadians out of Sudan in a second. First of all, though, let's let's get uh, your take on what's happening on the ground. We have word of a three-day truce. We also have word of, you know, fighting continuing. Uh, wh- what do you know about the, the situation in Sudan right now? As everybody's pointed out, it is, it is a very fluid situation, which makes it incredibly difficult to even plan for, you know, the international audience, um, the international community, plan how, do we, how are you going to evacuate your citizens, uh, your diplomats, etc. Yeah. But um, two issues are, are, are front and center here. One is uh, Sudan has been facing this, this, um, this effectively a civil war, which has hit some of its major cities, some of its major uh, bases around the country. Uh, and that has created um, sort of a um, cascading effect on, of course, food supplies, transportation access, security and safety. But it's also really impacted Internet connectivity. So we it's hard to even get a really good picture of what's going on. Uh, like there was in the first few days where you could see all sorts of video and you could get you could talk to your relatives if you had relatives there. Um, it is getting much, much tougher for to get more, you know, up-to-date information out from people that are actually on ground. And Chris, it's important to point out that we're, we're talking about a part of the world that was already in dire straits before this conflict, right? I mean, a large percent of the population was reliant on world food aid and things like that. I mean, they were not uh, in, in great shape before this armed conflict started. No, Sudan has had a very troubled history, you know. Um, if you go back three years, we saw the overthrow uh, through mass protests and then some assistance from, uh, you know, the military, the, the army on the, in, this, in this case. Um, but we saw mass protests against, uh, you know, President al-Bashir, who had been in power for 30 years. So that was 2019. So this is pre-COVID. But Sudan, up even leading up to 2019, had faced um, off and on again civil war within the country. We know that the country of South Sudan... Um, again, over decades of civil war, eventually becomes independent from Sudan in 2011 and then has its own problems. And then problems in the western part of Sudan have been ongoing off and on uh, for, for those 20 years. And that's where you get the rise of one of the major combatants in today's battles in Khartoum and elsewhere in the country is what we what you hear about is the rapid support forces, which... 10, 15 years ago, were, were called the Janjaweed Militia, which were battling uh, the people of Darfur, uh, many of which, uh, you know, many Albertans uh, are 
are in Alberta because they fled yes. that war in the western part of uh, Sudan. Um, as for the Canadians that are still in the country, yesterday the Prime Minister uh, announced that 58 of them, our diplomats, had been airlifted out by Germany. So there are evacuations taking place, and it's it's a global effort, right? I mean, this is this is all kinds of different countries working to get their people out. There has been... Uh an amazing number of um, what we would call, you know, our NATO allies, other countries um, that have had presence on the ground, their militaries, their air force, flying into the country in very select locations or flying near the country. Djibouti has become a major jumping off point for Canada now, as we know, as well as the Americans who already had a base there, the Germans, the French, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, there's been a, a, a relatively large response and I think Canada, which is today announcing all sorts of things that it's doing, was a little slow off the mark. Yeah. We have to we have to say that. But Canada is also really far away from Sudan, right? So um, it's a little tougher for us. We can't just get on a plane in Europe and and on a direct flight be in Djibouti or in Sudan. They so, also. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. I'm just, I'm just wondering when they announced that they suspended diplomatic operations over the course of the weekend, and I'm wondering what kind of a presence do we have there? What is the situation in terms of what was there and, and isn't there now? So, so what kind of work do you think is being done around that within that region or in Sudan right now? Well, we only had six Canadian staff at the embassy. It was already a small embassy. We had 12, as far as we know, latest numbers, we had 12 uh, locally engaged staff. So we have a an embassy staff of only 18 people in a country that's a very large country, um, 30, 40 million people. All right. So that's not a, a big embassy to begin with. Um, so the, their work is obviously stretched doing the consular, the trade, the, the peace and security elements. Right. So that's that's part of it. From what we've heard, that the staff, when they closed down, and we were not the only ones, the Americans, many countries have closed down their actual embassy operations in Khartoum and evacuated the staff, but apparently the staff is still in the region, right? They're either in Djibouti, they might be get posted to another uh, embassy nearby so that they can still service people. The biggest problem, of course, is, though, um, the lack of the problem with the Internet and the ICT infrastructure going down is, now you're trying to virtually contact people in an environment which is very difficult to get information through. And we've been hearing that from people that are trying to find out about evacuations happening, whether it's Canadian or whether it's others, that they're not getting the information that they need in a timely fashion. But that's just the nature of the beast now. Yeah. And, and like I say, the diplomats and everybody got up. But I mean, any idea how many people might be there? If we have 1,700 that are registered, um, it's probably several times more than that Canadian citizens that are in Sudan right now. And what's being done to help them? Well, it's going to be difficult because I know I've traveled when I've traveled all over Africa over the last 25, 30 years for work and for research. I rarely register, right? right I rarely yeah. register with the embassy. So um, if I'm going to some place that I know is a little bit, you know, a little bit touchier, yeah, I will be in touch with the embassy directly. I'll register. But generally, you know, you don't do it, right? So we know what 1,700 people so far they're saying that are registered, um, you know, 500 or so have actually asked for assistance. Another 100 have maybe been evacuated on top of the the diplomatic staff, there are probably, yeah, you could probably estimate, I don't know, two to five times more 
Canadians, Canadians of, you know, Sudanese origins, you know, Sudanese Canadians, the number of people online across the country on social media that are talking about their families or other people that they know that are in Sudan, the numbers are quite large. So uh, it's going to be tough to try and get everybody. The, the best way to help everybody, of course, is to have a, the ceasefire, even though it's leaky, mm-hmm. have the ceasefire extend and have some kind of a peaceful settlement. The problem is I can't see either the two leaders, the leader of the military and the leader of the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, easily coming to some compromise because right now they're struggling really for the future of the country, um, but without the, the actual best interests of Sudanese um, at, at, their, at their front of mind. Where do you see this potentially headed? Uh, the Secretary General of the UN said yesterday he sees, uh, he warned anyway of what he called a catastrophic conflagration that could engulf the whole region. Um, h- how bad could this get, do you think, Chris? Well, worst case scenario, yes, it could get very bad. We have to remember that, as you mentioned at the outset, Sudan, because of its long history of uh, different kinds of conflict over the years, Often and off and on again, civil war since the independence in '56. Um, that over 10 million Sudanese were already on international humanitarian assistance in terms of a system of food security related to conflict or related to, to drought. East Africa's had some horrible drought over the last two to five years, depending on where you are. So that's going to be made worse. Um, the internet, the conflict is, it's a, it's a civil conflict trying to figure out what's going, who's going to figure out the, uh, the, the leadership of this country going forward. Um, but the, um, there isn't an easy solution. And, and the conflict already, given the different forces that are involved, is already internationalized, both regionally and, and, and globally. That's not reassuring. <laughs> no, it's not. But let's, let's get it. Here's the reassuring part. Um, inter, uh, the, the African uh, folks, the, the leaders, uh, the countries, some senior states people that actually helped to bring a horrendous Ethiopian civil war to a ceasefire and an actual peace settlement um, back not that long ago. We had a two-year-long uh, civil war in Ethiopia where hundreds of thousands of people were killed directly or indirectly. But it was Africans who came together from the region that knocked heads together, created uh, opportunities for negotiation, facilitation. So in in this conflict, you have the African Union, you have this other regional group called IGAD, you have other countries. Kenya has committed to being engaged. They're not removing their, their diplomats. They want to stay in the country to help with facilitate discussions. So I think the African organizations and individuals who are going to be spearheading this need to be supported internationally so that they have a chance to try and make this work as they did so far in ethiopia right yeah exactly okay we'll continue to follow it along chris thanks so much for your time i do appreciate you being here